0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. John Rudolph. Dr. John Rudolph is a distinguished professor in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And he'll be talking to us about a great book he published with Oxford University Press called Why We Teach Science and Why We Should, which is a very, very timely topic. Because currently, I guess there's this debate... To push more students to study science and define humanities. We'll talk to uh, John and we'll see how effective this strategy is. But, John, uh, welcome to New Books Network. Can you please introduce yourself first before starting the conversation and tell us a little bit about your background and your field of study?
1: Sure. Yeah, happy to. Um, so, as you mentioned, uh, my name is John Rudolph. I'm a faculty member, a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and I've been here for the past 24 years or so I I started off as a a high school science teacher actually I I taught biology and physics and chemistry at uh, a number of high schools around Wisconsin and then I went back to grad school in the history of science and uh and and transitioned over to uh, a PhD program in curriculum and instruction and so now and then I've got a job as the faculty member and so currently uh in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Wisconsin um along with the department of educational policy studies
0: and and can you tell us how this book came about why did you decide to write a book about why we teach science and why we should teach science
1: yeah that's a great question so i my field is of research is primarily the history of science education you know sort of joining my interest in the history of science and and science education uh as it's currently practiced and I, I, in my department, I'm uh, I teach courses for pre-service science teachers. So our, we have a program that trains people to be middle and high school science teachers and get certified in the state of Wisconsin. And um, and so it, it was just interesting that that uh, a lot of students would come in, uh, people with it's a master's program, so they come in with an undergraduate degree in the sciences in some science already. And they're excited about science, and they want to teach science, and they, um, and they dive all in on on teaching students all the facts and concepts and theories and how to solve problems and everything. But they never really think about well, what's the purpose of science education? And and uh, my previous book um, that I that came out in 2019 was strictly a history of science education in the United States. And and toward the end of that book, my editor was asking me, well. Uh, this is great. We've got this wonderful history, um, but what should we be doing in science classrooms? And and my work with pre-service science teachers, and and sort of that question, had always sort of been with me, and and so I had been working on the in my course the various ways to think about the purposes of science education with students, and and then it manifested in this book, which is. Drawn from those experiences, working with science teachers and getting them to try to think about what, why do we teach science, and and how do, how should that impact what we do in classrooms? Um, when when
0: I was a student myself, when I was doing my PhD, I was I had another colleague who was doing his PhD in a different field. He was more drawn towards um, scientific approach towards literature, and I was just doing regular you know, regular stuff in literature and. We sometimes had this debate with the use of humanities, and uh, he would put this question: at least with science, it's practical; you can see the outcome. But why should we teach Shakespeare, for example? And you do speak about uh, how science has been taught for utilitarian purposes, historically speaking. And you come up with three purposes for teaching science: which is personal utility, national security, and economic growth. Can you talk about this? How it has been taught historically? for utilitarian purposes.
1: Yes, absolutely. That was I mean one of the first reasons science education appeared as a subject in schools was because it was believed to be useful, useful knowledge. Um and uh, in fact in the mid 1800s in the United States science was re- referred to as as what they called an information subject that it was uh other subjects like mathematics and classical languages were taught because they had the ability to discipline the mind, sort of this, this, this old faculty psychology psychology theory of learning that that you exercise the mind. But the science had its value from just the knowledge about how things worked in the world. And so that's where the utilitarian focus came from. And these ideas, the facts, enabled people to get things done. And, and over the course of the past uh century plus, uh, it's applied across different sort of uh, foci, like personal utility, like you pointed out, personal utility, national security, economic growth, and prosperity. And so the the three, just as I talk about in the book, the personal utility is, is pretty simple. It's sort of things that, like knowing how to get a stain out of a pair of pants or understanding enough human biology to avoid disease and stay healthy. And in fact, from the 1920s through the 1940s, Uh, there was a huge focus in science education on sort of the science of the home and community Um, and things like how to adjust a furnace damper or how to keep foods from spoiling basic sanitation and hygiene so that was all sort of these things that are very useful to the individual with world war ii and the cold war the focus shifted pretty dramatically to thinking about the utility of science for national security and here the focus was clearly a much more advanced science cutting edge research that had produced things like radar and and solid fuel rockets and the atomic bomb and and it was science not for the average student but an emphasis on science that would recruit and train new research scientists who could contribute to the development of military technology and and things like that during this this um time in, in history the more powerful argument today is about economic growth, economic prosperity. And this is all the things we hear about, talk of the STEM pipeline and all that, focus on the production of scientists and engineers who drive industrial innovation that can be turned to corporate profit and whatnot. And this emerged primarily in the late 1970s uh, during the economic recessions of the time. And people argued that science was the way out of that, that science was the key to innovation. Um, But it was also interesting how it manifests itself in different historical periods that argument sort of the economic industrial argument was also very prominent in the middle 1800s uh when the country was expanding west with an emphasis on knowledge related to agriculture minerals and mining rail transportation telegraph systems and things like that and so that that, that's the argument that probably gets the most traction um currently and and maybe historically too and
0: uh, do do you think this 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 way of teaching science in school by focusing on mastery of a discipline or the content of the book is it a useful way? Is it an approach to actually help students or citizens use science for general educational training purposes?
1: Yeah, I mean that's the that's the uh, there there are a number of these uh, myths of science education. I, I begin to to see it that way uh that there's this this belief that if we just teach students the facts the theories the concepts they're able to solve the problems balance the equations calculate the coefficients of friction that somehow that's useful to to students in their daily lives but it's really not um it really the research shows that that's not how students or people generally use information number one all the things we teach in in our science classes, very little of it is retained. Uh, there, there are studies that show most people, most even science majors, by the time they end their four years of college science education, they don't remember 40 to 60 percent of the science content they learned. And so with, with the everyday citizen, that's got to be even less. Um, and the way people typically solve problems isn't by trying to recall something they remember from their high school science class like how do you get a stain out of a pair of pants they're not going to think back oh I remember something about organic solvents um let me try to find something in my house that'll dissolve this oil stain or something you know most likely the way people work is they're going to Google it they're going to look up some tips on YouTube they're going to ask a friend or a relative or their mom, somebody who who does a lot of laundry. Um uh, that that's the way people solve their everyday problems. Um as as for in the other argument, one of the other myths is this notion that that doing science uh, develops these scientific reasoning skills that are useful in yeah, daily. Yeah. Right, the the critical thinking critical skills. Critical thinking. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 the research shows going through the research in cognitive psychology and whatnot, it it turns out it's very it's extremely difficult to teach the the uh, the ability to um, manipulate variables in ways that uh, allow someone to answer a scientific question are pretty complex and and not easily done by students in middle school and high school. I mean, you can walk them through lab experiences where they're they're step by step um asked to do this but in the end they don't really know what they did um and the cognitive psychologists that I've referenced in the book uh there's one there's one excerpt from a study that just came out in 2020 where uh uh they say this is work Andrew Stolman's done he says it doesn't appear there doesn't appear to be a natural developmental path toward higher levels of scientific reasoning and there are no obvious instructional strategies to help students learn the skills involved and so the this after decades and decades of work trying to think about teaching students scientific reasoning skills there's very little solid evidence that that, that can be done in any reasonably efficient way
0: and and i guess it's there's also this debate between those who study humanities and science as well because... Because they, they normally say critical thinking is something that comes from humanities, which is sort of a reductive argument because it could come. It depends on the way you teach, and it could come from any subject. Um, but um, yeah, but that's a different story. And do you do you think that this this the way the the focus is, of course, to prepare students for a scientific oriented career to become mm-hmm. scientists or IT technicians, engineers. Uh, do do you, do, you, do you think that the schools are actually doing this apart from you know issues of critical thinking that you just mentioned but do you think actually students schools or the way we approach teaching science is helping people to prepare a future let's say scientists or engineers
1: yeah i mean there there are actually uh, there's some debate about whether the the current emphasis in science education which is typically on sort of students learning content knowledge mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe engaging in scientific process the process of science or scientific practices uh, through hands-on laboratory work the way that it ends up showing up in schools is in a very sort of mechanical rote way uh uh-huh. sort of the book step-by-step laboratory and uh and then simply just you know memorizing the various uh you know facts like the the, the phases of cell division or um the 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 way to balance a, a a chemical equation or something like that um so it's done very uh algorithmically a uh, lot of learning by rote and the and so there's questions so you can get students through all that they can learn that they can do that um they don't remember much of it when they're done but they can take a test and they can score well on it um and carl wyman the nobel laureate in physics from originally University of Colorado uh he wrote a piece not too long ago that said that he gets these students who come into his lab and as graduate students who've done extremely well on their tests uh and and have been you know straight A students in the sciences and they struggle when they're asked to then engage in technical scientific reasoning research lab real laboratory work um and so so the question of whether that approach works to train scientists i think is an open question and there's really serious questions about that the other point is that very few students end up in science related careers to begin with if you take um a typical beginning freshman high school class so ninth grade class of students in an american the american educational system Uh, and say that's 100 percent of your of your population by the end of high school or actually by some dropout but by the end by their late 20s about half of them end up with degrees like a two year degree associate's degree or a four-year bachelor's degree Um, of those degrees that are earned only about 20 27 percent are in a science-related field. And and this is a broad definition of science-related field. So not just physics, biology, chemistry, uh, geology, but also engineering, agricultural sciences, health-related fields. Uh, So nursing, dental hygiene, respiratory therapy, like any of these broad notions of of science or science-related careers. Um, And so when you take that 50% who get degrees and only 27%, um, end up in a science related career the 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 total from that initial 100% student population is about 13% that end that that end up at that point with a science related degree. And at that point, only about half of them end up in a career. We overproduce STEM graduates in this in this country by about 40 to 100%. And so of all those students who start out, you you end up with 7% who end up in. science related career field um, which is incredible when you think about it so why do we spend all this time if the argument is that we need we, we teach in this way that's very content focused and very technical for stem careers well we're only teaching for this this seven percent of the population
0: mm-hmm. and i um, am i'm just thinking off the top of my head the most of this push i guess comes from politicians who feel that schools are only there to prepare the future workforce and i i live in australia and about i guess it was two years ago two years one year into covid so the government started the new it was in higher education of course subsidy scheme so they subsidized the stem fields more than humanities hoping to push more students into science in universities i just thought the whole scheme was ridiculous because you know you can't encourage somebody to study science simply because it's a little bit cheaper than studying humanities, especially after they have graduated from universities. Even if it's free, if, for example, even if there's a free course engineering, bachelor degree, I wouldn't be able to take that because I don't have the, the the aptitude and the attitude. And then two years after that, there was some statistics coming out that that scheme hadn't really changed the number of students in, hadn't significantly changed the number of students in in, in STEM fields. And um so yeah, whenever I guess the economy gets harsh, economic situation gets hard there's more push whether in high schools or universities for students to study science, hoping that they will get a job to boost the economy, which is one of the reasons you mentioned at the outset of the book, economic growth. And um you 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 talk in the book about focusing on teaching science for citizens or non uh or non-science bound student what what do you mean by that
1: well i mean so the the fact that that 93 percent of the of the students aren't going to end up in science careers science related careers means that we we definitely should be focusing on non-technical training goals i mean Mm -hmm. and what goals left i mean the, the citizenship goal is sort of the science that that the everyday person needs to understand to to get along in the world to to um to for society to manage the 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 problems and challenges that we're faced with I mean all there's a huge number of these things from you know Mm. the global pandemic to climate change to gene editing and water usage there's all kinds of science related social issues that that the everyday citizen needs to participate in and make decisions about and think about and so the technical knowledge that you might learn in the science class isn't useful in those situations
0: and uh the other question you sort of talked about you, you touched upon the idea of um, psychology cognitive psychology earlier uh so let's talk about how these how how you know there are different fields such as cognitive psychology science education science communication. Uh, to see if science, science education enables the students to solve everyday problems and also be better citizens, can you discuss this idea? How how do we prepare students to be better citizens to do to, to fulfill their civic duties through the teaching of science? Maybe not only humanities.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the challenge is that we were no one gives a lot of thought to that as a goal. I mean, mm. you you ask people who when they advocate for science education and policy documents that are written where they say oh we we need to uh, prepare people for the stem workforce then they'll also say and science is really important in um, democratic decision making and and yeah. therefore we need people to, to understand science but it's a, from their perspective it's a one-size-fits-all as long as people know the science content then they can get a job even though very few people go into those jobs And then they'll have science content knowledge to be able to answer questions about climate change, global warming, um, pandemics, vaccines, whatnot. But that's not how that's the the work from cognitive psychology and and science communication shows that that's not how people interact with science. That's not how Mm -hmm. people use science to make decisions. People typically fall back on making decisions based on their emotions or uh, uh, intuitive, intuitive shortcuts heuristics uh they they don't step back and say oh what what's the rational answer to this question what science mm-hmm. content now do i need to know um they they talk to friends they they talk to colleagues they rely on their social networks and we see this all the time with uh, there's work done by this um uh, uh Dan Kahan at Yale uh, where he looked at um how sort of the the difference between people who are left-leaning and right-leaning how levels of scientific literacy affect the way they make decisions Mm -hmm. or or see problems answers to questions in the everyday world and when they're very fact-based people with high levels of scientific content knowledge whether you're on the left or the right they get the same answers they they that's wonderful when there's any kind of a, a political element injected into the question that's asked like are humans responsible for global warming? Then there's a huge polarization where people on the left answer the question correctly or at least the way the the scientific community would say Mm. the answer should be answered and people on the right will will use the scientific knowledge they have so they have high content knowledge but then they use that content knowledge to to um, dismiss the arguments of the other people so they cling to their ideological perspective this is known as motivated reasoning, um, and they, they use that science content knowledge uh, not to arrive at what would be a correct answer, but to further their own political position or the position of their mm-hmm. group that they're identified with. Mm-hmm. And so that is, it just shows you that that this, and, and we all go back to this notion of of science, good science education is just learning the science content and that that'll do everything that that'll prepare citizens and and the workforce and all that and that's just the the research shows that that's not the case Mm -hmm. I'm not hearing you right at the moment oh sorry I I forgot to unmute my microphone
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was just saying that it was a very interesting point you just raised because there has been a lot of weaponization of science uh ideological war sacrificing let's say the idea of truth Simply to further one's political political ideas, Um, and uh, let's talk talk a little bit about history because you mentioned that you wrote a book about the history of teaching science. Let's when was science first introduced in the schools in the United States as a subject? Yeah, I mean science back then. Yeah,
1: right, right. Uh, It's almost always been in the in the first high schools and private academies Uh, in the U.S. The the earliest high schools. Were started around 1820s, right about that time. And the subject then typically showed up. And and the thing that I think it's important to realize is that high schools then were much closer to uh, small liberal arts colleges, rather than when we think of high schools now, we think of these mass institutions for that everybody goes to and that, you know, and the goal is 100% graduation. Uh, You know, there's a very small percentage of the population that actually went to high school in the early 1800s. And the subjects that showed up as science were things like natural philosophy, which is the early version of physics. Uh, Chemistry, geography was very popular. And then they didn't, biology wasn't invented yet. That didn't happen until the early 1900s. And so you you had students studying botany and zoology. And so there was a range of these various um, subjects. Like, and, and actually, uh, interestingly, there's this great book by Kim Tolley called The Science Education of American Girls. At that time, since uh, girls weren't expected to go on to college, they didn't study the the classical languages and and mathematics uh and so they were left with these subjects that were thought to be useful back to the utilitarian argument um, and so girls actually were the predominant um uh audience for these these science subjects in the 1800s the the chemistry geography botany zoology courses
0: and um you 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 do mention that it's the way science is taught. it's not very helpful. so when we need a radical change what what radical changes are required to teaching science to students, and how can we bring them about?
1: Yeah, that's a great question the the um uh, the way I approach it in the book, I mean it's hard to have so in the book, I make an argument that we need to look at the evidence like how do we how do we know what we should do? What's the evidence that the things we assume we're doing are actually working and and I have plenty of evidence and studies that I draw from that show that what we are currently doing isn't working the way we think it is and so my recommendations are are really just recommendations and and need to be uh tested I guess in practice but but based on what the research shows and and where the book comes from from a philosophical perspective is that this content focus isn't getting us what we want, and that the question, the real issue with the the current strife and difficulties with science related social issues around the world, I think, is is the problem of misinformation, the problem of the uh, dismissal and disregard of expertise, um, you, you know, all the the attacks on Fauci during the pandemic and everything like that and that that maybe we need to lay a foundation of helping the public understand where scientific knowledge comes from not just what the scientific knowledge is but how how do scientists know something how do they know what they know sort of an epistemological question and to walk students through like the creation of how did we discover the 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 structure of DNA how did Watson and Crick arrive at that what evidence did they draw from who did they depend on who was in their scientific networks what was Rosalind Franklin's role and and was she given proper credit for the x-ray crystallography data that she um worked with I mean so so helping people understand that we can know things and it's hard to know things and that when we do come to know something that that it has a a legitimacy it has a a durability that that can't just be waved away with, you know, a wave of the hand. And, and so that's one thing I think is really important to focus on. Um and, and that the creation of knowledge isn't just an individual scientist, a, you know, a lone solitary figure in a laboratory who just discovers something, but that it's a community that has checks and balances, that there's peer review, that that there's a development of of knowledge that the scientific community comes to a consensus about and it's not just one person's idea that you can then just say well that's just that person's thinking you know that that there's hundreds of people when it comes to, to human induced climate change for example the ipcc report is is a consensus document of hundreds thousands of scientists and so it's it shouldn't be easily dismissed and then the public needs to understand that i think yeah i was uh
0: I think it was last week i was talking uh, to somebody else about a book that she wrote about teaching including more women into science removing gender barriers to encourage more women to study science and she mentioned exactly the same thing that there's this idea that there's this lonely genius working in a lab producing works of science and then we talked a little bit about the rise of how to tackle the let's say how to rebuild faith and trust in science and that's a question that I'd like to pose as well, because you just touched upon some of the anti-science or let's say conspiracy theories, and we saw a lot of that during uh, COVID. Yeah. So generally, do you, how do you think we should tackle ha- tackle the, or let's say rebuild the? I don't think rebuild is the right way because I guess there is still a lot of faith in scientific community, but unfortunately, you do see disturbing trends. So how right. how do you think we should tackle that? To, Tackle the rise of, let's say, anti-science movements.
1: I mean, I think that that the the key is to there, there's a there's a, um, a sort of a tendency or a, a desire among some science educators, some a lot of teachers will say, well, you just need to listen to me because I'm the authority, uh, and that this is what the right knowledge is, and and what you're saying is wrong. And now I'm going to teach you what's right. And so that just comes off as authoritarian and dogmatic. Um, and so I do think that that science needs to be opened up like that, that we need to look, like I said, at, at how how it's done. What are where does that knowledge come from? The, the epistemological questions and and the fact that it's done by communities of individuals, that it's done in different ways. This is a really important point, I think, um, so there's the there's the book Merchants of Doubt by uh, Naomi Reskes and Eric Conway. Right. And and the the key things that they talk about as being uh, that the that these merchants of doubt were able to sow confusion among the public were climate change, the the cancer causing effects of smoking. Um, uh, there's one other one. I forgot what it was. But anyway, all of the examples that they use are are things that the public that the the our sciences epidemiology uh climate change climatology they that differ from sort of the stereotypical view of experimental science these are these are non-experimental sciences and so we teach when we do teach the process of science in schools we we often say oh we'll do a test you make a hypothesis and then you test it in the laboratory, and then you simply confirm whether it's true or not. But in all of these other instances, in a lot of subjects uh, or research topics like evolutionary biology and cosmology, there's no experiment that's done. It's all indirect evidence. It's, it's, uh, it's you come to that knowledge through very different non-experimental means and helping the public understand that science has done a variety of different ways depending on the question that's being asked the phenomena that's being explored that there's a plurality of practices that all are scientific but that they're not going to all conform to this very simple experimental approach to science that we that that you know so that someone who's against evolution can say well show me uh an instance show me uh, clear evidence that we evolved from apes uh that that can solve the argument once and for all. Well, that's not how evolutionary biology works. With macroevolutionary speciation, it's all indirect evidence. Fossil record, biogeography, uh, molecular biology. And, And so helping students see in those other subjects how knowledge is arrived at is really important, I think.
0: And uh, before we end this conversation, is there any other projects that you're currently working on?
1: Well, actually, I just finished a uh, a paper on the the origins of the concept of scientific literacy, which oh. uh, will be out in the fall. Which which is interesting because um, scientific literacy always gets thrown around as this this idea that that that'll solve the problem. We just need people who are scientifically literate, and if they're scientifically literate, then they'll be good citizens and they'll, and they'll be ready to support uh, science and they won't question expertise and all this. But mm. the problem is that it's meant different scientific literacy has been this sort of slogan or catchphrase that has been uh, bandied about in the media since world war two, 1945 is when it was coined. And, uh, and it, it, it just means, anything and everything. And so in the end, it doesn't become it's not a very useful idea. Everyone's on board, because it's it seems to make sense. Of course, we want people to be scientifically literate. Literacy is a good thing, right? And it builds these ideas of the ability to read and write basic skills. Um, And so uh, there's a spot in the book where I argue that we need to just stop talking about scientific literacy and just what is it we want people to understand about science and for what purpose? Mm. right the way we teach science question. Mm. right
0: professor john rudolph thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on New books network with us
1: well it's wonderful to be given the opportunity thank you